Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prince for the week of February 14, 2016. We hope all of you have had a wonderful Valentine's Day. Several weeks ago, Mike Hudson, director of the American Printing House for the Blind Museum, was a guest on Sound Prints. He told us about APH's efforts to acquire for the museum a very rare copy of an original book written by Louis Braille in 1829. The cost of this book was $95,000, and a fundraising campaign was underway. This past Thursday, February 11, a reception was held at the museum and the book was unveiled. Thanks to the generosity of both large donors and individuals, we understand that all but about $2,000 is now committed to the project. On page 2, you will hear audio from the unveiling ceremony at the museum. Speakers include Dr. Craig Metter, the new president at APH, Mike Hudson, Museum Director, and Gary Mudd, APH Vice President of Public Relations. Among attendees at the reception were David Holton, a judge here in Louisville who is blind, Mitzi Friedlander, well-known talking book narrator, now retired, and many others. KCB, its chapters and members, and the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association have been responsible for raising nearly $2,000 for the project. ACB made a donation in honor of Dr. Tuck Tinsley, retired president of APH, and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, a longtime sponsor of Sound Prints, contributed $10,000. Last week, Jonathan McCarty visited with us to bring us up to date on the 2016 North Central Association of Schools for the Blind Wrestling and Cheerleading Conference Championships held at the Kentucky School for the Blind. Fifty years ago, in 1966, the KSB wrestling team won the Kentucky State High School Wrestling Tournament. The 1966 team will be honored at the upcoming Kentucky State Wrestling Tournament, and Eddie Myers, one of the members of that awesome team from 50 years ago, shares his memories with us on page 3. My husband Adam and I treated ourselves to a new countertop grill this Christmas. We've owned various George Foreman grills over the years, lots of different models, but this time we bought a Cuisinart grill. 240 square inches of cooking surface and lots of accessible features, including temperature control knobs. We shared the grill at the GLCB Roundabout this past Friday. Listen to some of the presentation and learn more about this great countertop appliance on page 4. And on page 5 is the Sound Prince calendar. Page 2. My name is Craig Metter. I'm the president of the American Printing House for the Blind. I just wanted to take this opportunity and welcome everybody here to what is probably one of the most exciting nights in our company's history. Tonight we're gathered to celebrate uh, the addition of an incredibly rare piece of our history. And we have to go all the way back to 1829 for this history. 
But in 1829, a unique school in Paris, France, published a new system of reading and writing designed especially for students who are blind. Today, you know, we call that system Braille. Last year, our company, APH, produced close to 17 million pages of Braille for students in the United States. So from that number, you can tell this is a, is a, a very important part of a, a blind student's education. But this wasn't always the case. In fact, if you go back to 1842 at that same school, they had a shift in management. And uh, I think that's something new, new. I mean, it's not new to I'm new here at AT. But sometimes with a shift in management comes different ideas. And this, at this time, the school management decided this probably isn't the direction we want to go. So they began to eliminate these Braille books and began to burn these books. And from what we know, that as of today, there are only six of these copies in the world. And we happen to have one of those copies here. I've grown up in this field. This is, this is my 32nd year in the field of, of blindness education. And so if I get teary or if I start to get uh, a little geeked out about this, this is big stuff. It, it, I mean, it, this is, for those of you who are in the field, those of you who are Braille readers, you want you probably are feeling the same emotions that I'm feeling right now. This is important stuff. This is, uh, I, I mean, I don't know how to equate this to, to uh, much of anything else other than if, if you had a, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I won't even go there. It's just an amazing time. Gutenberg Bible. There you go. There, and it is. This is the Gutenberg Bible for real students. And, and Mike is going to talk more about that in a minute, so I won't steal any thunder here. But you know, when, when this opportunity came, the, the first thing we knew is we couldn't do this, and we didn't want to do this effort on our own, because uh, APH is, is about, is as much about its customers as it is about its company, so we wanted to invite folks to have, to participate in this opportunity to bring this book to APH, and, and people were generous, and so with this, the help of some very good friends and our board, we're gathered here tonight to thank those folks as well to unveil this book to the public. But before we get into all of that, I first want to acknowledge we have a, a number of elected officials that were supposed to be here tonight, and I didn't get a chance to see if all of you were here, so I'm going to read some names, and if you're here, just raise your hand because we want to acknowledge you. APH has been very fortunate. We were started in 1858, and since that very time, we've been supported continually by local, state, and national government. And, you know, not every agency can say that. Uh, this part of the building we're standing in right now was actually built with appropriations from the state of Kentucky back in 1880. So it's, uh, we've put some paint on it since then, but it's structurally it's the same place. So uh, from uh, Senate District 19, we had Senator Morgan McGarvey right here. Okay. Uh, District 36, Senator Julie Adams. Representative Ron Krim from District 33. From Mayor Fisher's office, Eric Freelander. Right here. Is here? Yeah. There he is. Yeah. 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 Eric is being escorted tonight by Mitzi Freelander, probably one of the most famous I know how to pick a date. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. 
uh, from Senator Mitch McConnell's office, Angie Schulte. Is Angie here? And Andrew Condia, too. Oh, all right. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate you being here. So let's talk about our foundation donors. We, we receive two very large gifts and then many, many additional gifts. So I want to thank those folks first. First, Marianne and Jim Welch. The Louisville Downtown Lions Club, Karen Abraham, President. There they are. And we received many other important gifts from other local organizations. Kentucky School for the Blind Charitable Foundation. Kentucky Council of the Blind. volumes about that. The Tri-State Library Users of America. Yeah. Elizabethtown Lions Club. Yeah. All right. Savvy Inc. Yeah. All right. And then, as you can see from the list up here, many, many individual donors. So rather than me try to read this name and mispronounce names and offend folks or forget something, if you contributed to this APH project or any other APH project, please just raise your hand. We want to recognize you and say thank you. <laughs> Finally, I, I want to recognize uh, members of the board of the American Printing House for the Blind that are present. I see Barrett Nichols. There he is. He's our chair of our board. Judge David Bolton. Dr. Barr here, Dr. Lee, there, there's Dr. Virginia King, there you are, front and center. I gotta, I gotta brag a little bit about our board. Uh, they have provided such critical leadership, not only for this project, but for our museum and our other libraries. We have two very extensive libraries that, um, and it's through the, the board gets it here. They understand that. This, the information that passes in front of us is very valuable. And if APH doesn't capture that, there's not another agency that's going to pick that up. In fact, when this opportunity first came forward, I, I think it was Dr. Barr, and his, and his sentiment was echoed by the other board members, is we will get this book at whatever cost. Okay. I, I and just a recognition of the importance of the history that, that we're going to talk, see tonight. So we're excited about that. So I'm going to step aside for a moment, but I'm going to introduce two gentlemen who are probably more excited than I am. Um, one is Mike Hudson, our museum director. Gary Mudd, who is our vice So good evening, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm going to bust up here. So uh, I want to welcome everybody to what is an exciting night for our company. Um, that's your speech, Craig. <laughs> so although you may not see it, you're standing in one of the most historic spaces in our building. This is the rear wing of our original 1883 building. At one time, this wing 
clattered with embossing presses, sewing machines, and the whisper of paper being folded and collated and wrapped and packed for shipment across the U.S. Overhead pulleys and leather belts ran power from a steam engine to these various machines. The printing house was founded in 1858, and by 1883, it was already the largest supplier of books for blind readers in the U.S., but not one book in the system that would make true literacy possible for those blind readers. Great. Not one book had been in Austria at APH. That would not happen until 1893, in the midst of the great debates that came to be known as the War of the Dots. So we are gathered tonight in this historic space to celebrate the most important acquisition that we've made in the 10 years that I've served as the museum director. A copy of Louis Braille's pioneering work, Method for Writing Words, Music, and Plain Chant by Means of Dots for the Use by the Blind and Arranged for Them, embossed at the institution for blind youth in Paris, France in 1829. Now, in almost every way, this book was experimental. It proposed a system that was much easier to read than the raised letter codes then being used. It proposed a system that, for the first time, allowed a person who was blind to write using a pocket tool and then to read her own writing. The binding includes spacers that protect the embossed areas from being flattened by the weight of the book itself. And this is pretty interesting. The spacers are made from folded pages of other embossed books. What are those books? I know I want to know. Now, instead of using just dots, as our Braille appears today, Louis also utilized dashes in this experimental code. Now, by 1837, when he published his second edition, the dashes had disappeared. Experience had taught him that they were not as clear as the dot patterns. Um, there are no contractions in this book. Now, in later editions, some Braille symbols are going to stand for common letter patterns, like CH and ER. We call those contractions. But in this early edition, they are absent. And Louis Braille includes the first edition of his wonderful music code. Later editions are going to improve it, but it's interesting to note that during the late 19th century, when educators across America were arguing over which tactile code was best, most still admitted, reluctantly, that the music Braille code was un unsurpassed. Now, it's fascinating to explore the way that the code has evolved to meet the needs of its users. For we're still adapting and changing Louis' code to meet modern needs. But from his beautiful, simple A, the single dot in the upper left, to his wonderful Z, with dots in positions 1, 3, 5, and 6, we still emboss his alphabet just as he wrote it in 1829. And future generations of readers and translators and teachers and parents are going to be able to come to our museum and see the spark of genius that made much of what we do today at APH possible. 
Now, I'm really excited about our plans going forward to um, revise our exhibit on early books in the museum and focus attention on Louis's early work. And I know my boss, Harry Mudd, our Vice President of Public Affairs, is equally excited, and I will get out of his way so he can share a few thoughts. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Uh, you would think I would know by now not to follow my cuts. <laughs> to most people, uh, Braille is a curiosity, but to me it's essential. I lost my sight when I was 12, and I did not know a blind person, did not know what it meant to be blind, but I, I, I guess, uh, well, the best way to say it was a little bit scared. Uh, but as my new teachers at the Kentucky School for the Blind guided my experiences learning this new code, new to me anyway, I began to realize that here was something that I could use to begin to regain my independence. Uh, I use Braille every day here at the American Print House for the Blind. Today is, uh, I, I use it in uh, every day at work. Uh, I take notes, I read reports, newspapers, articles, all in Braille. Uh, I use speech too, and I use every method I can, I can use to, to, to get information. But it is, uh, I use it in all forms, Braille I do, hard, hard paper copies, and electronic Braille on a refreshable Braille display. Um, I can key in my emails with a Braille keyboard that my sighted colleagues can read and print. I type documents on a QWERTY keyboard, and through translation and embossing, I can read them in hard print. Without Braille, I would not consider myself literate, just as you would not knowing how to read print. Consider. Uh, I would uh, not know how to spell, capitalize, and punctuate well by just listening. I have to feel the Braille under my fingers. Braille is literacy, and literacy is my connection to the world. We opened our award-winning museum in 1994 to be the keeper of our field's collective history. With the addition of this Louis Braille first edition Braille code book, I couldn't be more proud uh, uh, at APH. We, we can trace the true beginning of our literacy uh, uh, for, Braille, for Braille readers and blind people. The beginning of a revolution that changed the way our society thinks about people with vision loss or blindness. And it basically changed the way we think about ourselves as well. Being literate, being able to read and write is pretty important. So now I want to thank you all for being here, making this day possible, and I want to turn it over to our President Craig Mayer. I'd ask for an amen. amen. All right. 
didn't have to do that. <laughs> it just kind of brings it all back home. This is, I, I, like, like uh, Gary and Mike said, uh, uh, man, if we had a bar, I'd be buying right now. <laughs> There's wine, but uh, you know what I'm saying. So on behalf of the board, ex officio trustees, staff of the American Printing House for the Blind, welcome this exciting new addition to our museum's collection. And welcome Louisville and the world to come visit us here and learn more about this incredible story. So I'm going to butcher the French here, so viva la Louis Braille. <laughs> Find books and more in accessible media with APH's free-of-charge Louis database. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot APH dot org. Locate accessible educational materials from nearly 200 different agencies. APH products and textbooks can also be located using Louis. New extended searching now available with free Louis Plus. Visit soon http colon slash slash l-o-u-i-s dot a-p-h dot org many book materials help braille users jot notes quickly pull a-p-h's mini book braille binder out of your pocket and begin to write on the mini book slate in just seconds materials are sold separately so that you can choose the combination that's right for you call the american printing house for the blind toll-free, 800-223-1839, or visit www.aph.org. Page 3. Eddie Myers is a 1968 graduate of the Kentucky School for the Blind, and a lot of people will identify him as uh, and, and know him as a vendor in Kentucky. He's been a vendor for a long time. But we're not talking about vending today. We're not talking about um, anything serious. We're going to talk about the 1966 wrestling team from the Kentucky School for the Blind because they won the state championship uh, in that year. And... Um, that's that's quite a feat, quite unusual. So, Eddie, we're glad to have you on Sound Prince, and uh, hope we can just kind of do some go down memory lane here. Well, thank you, Carlo. I'll tell you, uh, I was thinking about that 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 wrestling team, and really, it really was very very unusual times. Okay, we had a new wrestling coach. Uh, who didn't have a clue about wrestling that year. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I don't think that we ever thought we were going to win the state championship. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was pretty amazing that when I look back, I think we actually did win it. Mm -hmm. And um, the, I, the, the coach that we previously uh, had was Will Evans, but I, I think he got some sort of promotion, and, and he, had, he had lots of other things put on his plate, so he really didn't have an opportunity to, to actually coach wrestling, although he would show up quite a bit to help out. Mm. I remember and we had, uh, I think there were, I think, as I recall, there were 11 positions that, that had to be filled on that team, and uh, I think about half of them, we didn't have anybody to fill it when the year started. Oh, my. Well, you gotta, and that's not unusual. 
at, at a school for the blind uh, sometimes. But back then, there were more kids that did come out for wrestling. But by the end of the year, you had a pretty full team. Uh, I think it was completely full by the end of the year. We just kind of drafted in anybody we could find. Mm -hmm. That's why it was, you know, really unusual that, that we would actually win the state championship. But, right. Uh, you know, we had a lot of fun. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. But what I remember about it is that um, we, we had a new coach that year, and his name was Ed Murray. And he is like a story within himself. He was really an interesting person. And, and a lot of people don't remember him because I think he was only there for a year. Okay. But he came in from a teacher's college, and they gave him uh, the coaching job. And... Like I said, he didn't have a clue about wrestling. Okay. So we had to figure out uh, how are we going to do this, okay? He doesn't mm -hmm. know anything about wrestling, but he was an, an incredible motivator. Mm -hmm. So he was willing to learn, and we were willing to listen to what he had to say. But he was very encouraging. He encouraged these, these guys. But he, he also built a really good relationship really fast with us. Mm -hmm. And so we were willing to just, you know, do what what he said, and he would he he was willing to listen to what we had to say, and um, we ended up getting the positions filled. We 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 would just get people that you know wanted to to give it a try and wrestle, mm -hmm. and they would learn very quickly. But you you remember the. the the, the School for the Blind is a, is a very unique organization, and as a result, you know, there wasn't very many, very many people in compared to public school. Right. I think what the average graduating class was about 8 to 10, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ours was 7 the year before. Yeah. Yeah. And so... And, and at that time, the school had about 140 kids. So we had to so. recruit some people that were athletic out of a really small number. Right. Whereas in the... In the in the public schools, uh, I think they had, you know, some of their graduating classes were 800, 900, you know, mm -hmm, really, mm -hmm. really big. Um, and so they had a bigger selection. But here's and, what I think they had the did, advantage. And you, you did have a kernel of people because you had James Earl Harden. Right. Who was an absolutely incredible wrestler. In fact, Andy. I think he actually went to college on a wrestling scholarship for yeah. a couple of years. Right. And you had a guy named Larry Crow who was... It's he was great, right. and and I think Larry Cook was pretty good, wasn't he? We yeah. well, that's that's it. We had about and, six or seven people yeah. that were really good on that team. Yeah. And Danny Dickerson. Danny Dickerson, yeah. and uh, and and, you, and some of these some of these kids started wrestling in the first grade. <laughs> so this is where the school for the blind actually had the advantage because at this time wrestling in Kentucky was not a big deal. Right. Uh, the schools were, you know, there were a number of schools just getting into it. Today, it's incredible. I mean, every every high school is into it. Right. But but at the same time, uh, the school for the bond had a tradition of of wrestling and went way back. I don't know how far back it yeah, went. Quite about far. twenty years, I think, at that point. Way back. So they yeah. had they had their tradition, and and we, you know, they like the schools, the public schools. When we would wrestle against them, we were wrestling against football players and people like that. Right. So they had, you know, they had a good source to choose from. Mm -hmm. But everything came together. Uh, it was really, it was really an incredible experience. Um, and I remember at the end of the year, 
when we actually had won the state championship, I think we probably were more surprised than anybody. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah. yeah. And we got invited to Frankfurt, and we got a standing ovation from the legislators. I remember that. How fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, some of the other guys that were on that team, um, you had the three Larrys. Right. Uh, Larry Crow, Larry Cook, and Larry Kerr. Mm-hmm. And, of course, James Earl. And then a guy named Earl Moore. Earl Moore. He was, I guess he was probably pretty close to the heavyweight. He was the heavyweight, he, I think. Yeah, he was the heavyweight for years. I mean, he was just huge. And um, then there was Grady Curlin. Grady was a senior that year. Right. Um, Danny Dickerson, we said. Richard Lewis. Dr. Jimmy Whitehouse. Yeah, and Joe Gary Flint. Joe Gary Flint. And, and you were on that team. Right. Okay, so I think that was a pretty, that had to be a pretty fun team because a lot of those guys were really, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure that coach had his hands full just keeping up with all you guys. Well, <laughs> he was an interesting person. He really was. I, uh, Ed Murray, I, I really liked him a lot. When he came to the school for the blind, he didn't know what he was really getting into, okay? And, and by the way, I think he had a walking disability of, of some sort. Uh, and I, I can't remember what it was. He had a prosthesis, I think, mm-hmm. from his knee down. Mm-hmm. But he he said he was determined to run and play basketball and never let that bother him. But wow. he came to the school for the blind, and he did not know what to expect, but he said it wasn't what he got. <laughs> I'll bet. And I remember uh, he's, he was about 24 years old, and he got a letter from one of his buddies from... I think he might have gone to either Peabody or Murray, one of the teaching colleges at that time. Uh-huh. So he got a he got a letter from, and I have to tell you this story. He got a letter from um, one of his buddies, and he read it to us, and it, it it was something like, you know, dear Ed, you, you're it's just really noble of you to go up and <laughs> and teach these blind kids. It's just a wonderful thing for you to do. Blah blah blah. Uh-huh. And I remember we all laughed. He laughed. He tore the letter up and threw it in the trash can. He said, you know, I was going to invite this guy to come visit me, but I better not because I know what you guys would do to him. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a story Ralph Bartley tells about when he got out of school. He graduated from high school in 1965. And, of course, he was the superintendent of the Kentucky School for the Blind for, uh, I don't know, six or seven years. Um, ending in 2002, he was the last superintendent of the school. They don't have one now, for those listening who aren't familiar with all of that story. But Ralph, Ralph's first job, actually how he got into services for the blind, was by going to the Missouri School for the Blind and being a dorm parent. And he said early on in the year when he was there, said the wrestling coach came and said, Hey, Ralph, would you come to the gym and help the kids practice? And he said, Oh, sure. I'll go help the blind kids practice. You know, practice. So he goes into the gym, and of course, you probably remember like the Dewberries from Missouri. And um, oh my gosh, I mean, they were great wrestlers. So Ralph goes in, and he's figuring that he's going to go easy on these blind kids, and they mop the mat up with him, you know. And uh, he said he never again went in to help with. Uh, wrestling practice because he said, <laughs> he said they were really tough. Well, that brings me to say that um, I don't know what happened. Uh, you may not remember even what happened in uh, 1966 with the NCASB tournament, but oftentimes 
back then, we could do really well. Our teams did well in the state. But we'd get to the NC with the other schools for the blind that really had good wrestlers, too. And, you know, we might come in third or fourth or fifth. I mean, you had Michigan out there that was either winning or getting second in every weight class. And, you know, the rest of the schools were just kind of there. So... Um, you know, it, it we could do well, and our guys did well in the state. Um, Adam won the state wrestling his well, his weight class a couple of years, right. but I don't think he ever won a, uh, an, an NC weight class. So it, it was tough, but uh, but that that's really cool. They have banner in the a banner in the KSB gym, hanging up honoring the 1966 wrestling team. And uh, I think they're getting ready this year at the state tournament to honor the honor that team as a 40th year in a celebration of of that of that championship. Uh, it would be 50. Uh, 50, yeah. I can't. You know, it's early in the morning. Yeah. Yes, you're right. 50th year, 50th championship. So, um, well, do you remember any? Um, you know, any stories from that time, any, maybe any trips that, or, you know, you all also took, would have taken trips uh, to the NC. Do you remember where you went that year for the tournament, or? I, I don't remember, but I, 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 I think that I remember that we actually did win the NC. The NC that year? The, the NCS. I don't know if it was that year or the next year. Yeah. One one year we won that thing. That that was really an accomplishment. I, I think yeah. the year we went to South Dakota. Oh my! Well, that would be a long trip too. That was it. I believe that in the winter time. That was also the first time I ever flew on a jet. Oh, so that was good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Flying on a jet back in the '60s, most people don't realize that was a big deal. Up in suit and ties because it was an event. Right. That's right. Now they just throw on their, their blue jeans and t-shirt and go. No, yeah, you didn't. You you dressed up to get on a plane back mm-hmm. then. Plus, it was there weren't that many jets around for the. I mean, sometimes the service um, for just you know the the um, just service for people, not military or anything. You know, there weren't always you know they weren't jets like you have flying around today. The huge planes, and. Um, you know those the, those were not on a lot of the routes like they are today. So, um, and usually when we took trips, when when the guys took trips, and then ultimately the cheerleaders got to go. Sometimes, um, I know the the KSB school bus. You remember riding on that school bus when the heater didn't yeah. work in January? Those were always interesting trips, but that's what made them fun. Yeah, the coldest trip we ever took was to East Lansing, Michigan. Oh, yeah. Were you on that in 1963? Is that was what it? it was? Yes. Yeah. They they let us go. They let the cheerleaders go on that trip. And that was the first time we got to go to a tournament. Um, before that, the cheerleaders never got to go to the NC tournament. And um, we did not know until that bus, until you all actually got loaded on that bus, that we um, were going to get to make the trip. It was and cold. Yes, Probably it was. Not. Cold and snowy. It was down below zero. It was unbelievable. Do you remember, uh, you you might not, but do you remember any of your um, trips to the public high schools, be it that year or other years that might have had a few, you know, interesting stories, different little things that happened? Yeah, I don't remember. I, I tell you, I, I did, a guy that I did wrestle in, in, in high school 
His name was Mike Gibbons, and he was from uh, Hopkinsville. When I was up at the university my freshman year at UK, uh, we, we ran into each other, and really we've had a long, uh, a life, a long, long relationship. Uh, we, I mean, I still talk to him today. Uh, he's back down in, in Hopkinsville, so mm-hmm. uh, I made a connection there, and, and we were good friends all through college, and uh, if I needed something, uh, uh, if I needed some help on something, I could call him. He was in, he was in Sigma Chi, and uh, if I needed some readers or something like that, uh, he, would, he would go get them, and, uh, you know, they all pulled together, and yeah, we, we, we you know, they, they tried to rush me. They tried to get me to join uh, a Sigma Chi, but I just, I, I, I couldn't handle fraternity life. That just, that wasn't going to work for me. But they were great friends of mine. And another guy that, that I wrestled in, in high school, you'll love this. This guy's on the radio almost every day, and his name is Tony Melito. The people, people, he sells used cars. Have you heard that commercial? Uh-huh. Uh, he yes. was from North Harden. Oh, wow. So every time I hear that car commercial, I think of him. Wow, that's a neat story. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows about him. Mm-hmm. He's on Facebook. Everybody says they wish he would shut up because he, he's got about 10 commercials an hour on. But I remember Tony Melito. He, he was a, yeah, he, and he was a good wrestler. Wow. Well, I sure appreciate you being on Sound Prince with us. This has been great memories and uh, talking about a great team. You know, they it, that was an unusual time. It was a great time. And when lots of kids would participate, we could fill the team. I, I don't think, you know, we used to think we had uh, low participation if we had three empty slots out of 11. Right. And today, we just did an interview with Jonathan McCarty last week because he's assisting with um, the coaching of wrestling at the School for the Blind. They just had the NC here a week ago. And he was very proud that they had four of the slots filled. And that's not, this is not something that's unusual for this year. For the past many years, you know, in today's world, sometimes kids just don't have a commitment to get, go out and practice every day wrestling is not something you do when you don't feel like doing something else you've got to be committed to go to practice every day um you know you got to be committed to cut the weight sometimes you can't eat all the things you want to do um wrestlers were always cutting weight and that's why after a wrestling match they ate everything in sight and um you know there's there's oftentimes not the commitment and Back into the late 90s, even when I was teaching at KSB, um, you'd have kids that would start at the beginning of the year, and after two days, they discovered it was work. They didn't want to do that much work. And so in looking back at the 60s, you know, you guys would cut weight all year. And, um, and even if a person wrestled for a year or two, um, we had enough kids that we were able to mostly fill the team and... It, it was sort of the in thing to be a wrestler at that time. Uh, and there, there were lots more people that, that participated. And like you say, some kids started as little bitty kids. Danny Dickerson, I, I remember him when he first came there. He's a little bitty kid. And there was always this little bitty kid that was that was practicing and wrestling with the team. And he might only weigh 80 pounds, but he was wrestling those lower than 95 weight class and stuff like that. And, you know, Danny was, he was a little bitty scrawny kid, but boy, he was tough, you know. And um, 
so wrestling was it it was a really really good sport and any kind of athletics are i think good for I loved, blind kids I, I loved i'll tell you how much i liked it uh when i got to uk uh, mm -hmm. i wrestled freshman sophomore and uh, junior year in intramural really yeah and, and that's what my friend mike uh, he did too uh-huh uh, mike gibbons and so how was that different from from wrestling in high school, or was it pretty much the same kind of regimen that you had in high school? Uh, pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much the same regimen. I, I, uh, they had a re they actually had a wrestling room. They actually had better uh, facilities at UK. Mm -hmm. A lot more elaborate. Oh yeah. Weight room and you know whirlpool and 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 all those things. And we got we got to use those. But intramural was actually pretty big because you got to remember the University of Kentucky has, well, I don't know, I think at that time about 30, 35,000 students. And so all the fraternities, all the, all the Greeks, all the, any, the, the Baptist Student Union, they all had a wrestling team. Mm -hmm. and, and so. And which one, which group did you wrestle with? I wrestled for Sigma Chi, okay? They uh -huh. asked me to do it. Even I, though you weren't in their fraternity, no, have, they had you wrestle. No, you could, no, you didn't have to be in. Any organization could, could, could draft you in. If they, all they had to do was come out, would you wrestle for our... I actually had the Baptist Student Union ask me, and I said, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm already committed to do another one. But, but yeah, that's almost funny. I know. <laughs> it really is. You should have wrestled for the Baptist Student Union. <laughs> well... Well, that would have made a good story in itself. Probably. <laughs> they had, uh, but but that was actually it, that was a lot of fun. It was amazing yeah. how many people showed up for that thing. There were you know thousands. There was way more in, in intramural wrestling in college that showed up than there was in high school. Really? Yes. How fun! Well, they used the they used the old alumni gym, and it held several thousand people. They always packed them in there. Really? Yeah. Well, it was great. Yeah. Well, sure appreciate you being up on Saturday morning and helping uh, help us go down memory lane and sharing, you know, some of your memories and, and your college stories. Those are good, too. So thank you very much. Thank you, Carl. It's a pleasure. Page four. A lot of us have had George Foreman grills and other grills for a long time. Many years ago, my brother-in-law uh, gave Adam and me a Hamilton Beach grill for Christmas, and it was a little bitty one. It was the kind that it would hold two hamburgers if they were real scrunchy, and, uh, but it was wonderful. And we used it and used it and used it, and then we said, we got to have something bigger. And so we got a George Foreman, and we've gone through several of those over the years. Um, because as you use them, sometimes, you know, they're non-stick plates, so when that stuff starts peeling off, you don't want to keep using it because that's not so good for yourself. And I said, well, let's just see what else is out there. And on Amazon, they have several different brands. I found this Cuisinart. Anyway, so I said, well, Cuisinart's a good brand. It looked different than what I thought it was going to look. I mean, I, I did not imagine it the way it actually looks from just reading about it. And so I think telling about it, too, is, is kind of the same way. You just about have to feel what these look like. Um, first of all, this is square, pretty close to square. And it has um, a handle. The handle on it is um, a, a 
uh, a, a real a handle that goes all the way across the front. And so it, you know, you can, you of course, use it to raise and lower the top. Um, and the top, we'll talk more about it in a minute, but when you raise it with the handle, the top um, is not stationary. The top can either, it, cl it clicks in place like you would expect a top of anything to, but you can also um, push it so that it swings down and uh, would, would make, uh, make it possible for the um, top, instead of on the George Foreman grill, you know how the top, even when it has that um, hinge, that can um, make it taller. Uh, if you put something in a little tall, the front is still open more than the back. It slants because the top is rigid. Well, on this grill, you can um, change that so the top is flat. So you've got a flat top and a flat uh, grill space on the bottom. The plates come out. Um, they are removable. That makes it easy for washing. But what it also does is mean that your grill plate, which has ridges on it, can be turned over and both of them can become a griddle plate with a flat surface. So, um, you know, if you don't want something with ridges in it or uh, you're cooking hamburgers or vegetables or whatever and you really don't want them to look like they've been on the grill, you can turn the plates over and you can have a, the grill plate on the bottom and the flat plate on the top or you can make them both um, the, the griddle plate, whatever you wish. The top of the grill opens all the way back, so you can have a double cooking surface. And um, so that would make it like um, cooking on, um, on just on the top, on the stove, um, as far as, say, having something uh, in a pan or whatever. So you can have a double cooking surface. Um, there are the knobs that control the heat. You know, sometimes on our last couple of George Foremans, we had a little, um, it had a little thing that slid back and forth uh, on the front. So to the left was low, and as you got closer to the right side, it was high. These are knobs, old-fashioned knobs. And so when the knob is, the knob for the bottom plate is all the way down on the left. Um, that's the lowest temperature. That's around 150 to 200, so it's really low. You can turn it all the way over to the right, and it can get up really hot, like 450 or so. Straight up is 300, and that's a good place for cooking things if you don't like to really have things real, real hot. Um, the, the other knob works for the top plate, and it works exactly the same way. So you can adjust the temperature on both plates separately. The other neat thing is that you can, it has six different um, little slots that you can put, there's a little lever on the side, and you can turn this little lever and move it up and down to the six slots and everywhere you have it, let's say you put it in the third slot, when you close the grill, it will, um, that's what increases the height of, of your cooking. So if you've got something fat, you know, if you've got, um, um, oh, I don't know, if, if you have a really fat sandwich, you know, um, my dad would have called them a Dagwood sandwich. If you've got a huge sandwich, or if you've got a real thick piece of meat or chicken, 
um, you know, with with the bone. And uh, so you can put that on there, and then you can um, set your top. You can either let it be slanted in the back, so your top is still stationary, or you can um, let the top down, you know, loosen it up, and uh, just push it down, and it will then fit flat across the item that you're cooking, that fatter uh, item. And that would make for more even cooking. The best part is the grease catcher. Oh my gosh. On the George Foreman, the grease catchers do not, they're not stable. And anybody that's got a George Foreman knows you're supposed to just set the grease catcher in front of the grill, right? And then you can come along and just brush it off. How many people that's had a George Foreman have, have spilled the grease inadvertently? And I know we have. And um, this grease catcher slides in a slot on the back of the grill. And I promise you, you could not make this fall out because the, um, the slot is the height of the grease catcher and it won't come out the left side. You only pull it out the right and it goes all the way across the back of the grill. So that's basically what the grill, that, those are the features of, of the grill. So if anybody wants to come see this, you're welcome to. Page five, the Sound Prince calendar. On February 19, the Statewide Rehabilitation Council for the Office for the Blind will be meeting from 9.30 a.m. until approximately 2.30 p.m. at the McDowell Center in Louisville. For more information, call Jennifer Wright at 502-564-4754. Also on February 19, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will be holding its next roundabout, Braille and Tech Tips from 3.30 to 5.15, General Discussion, 5.15 to 6, Dinner, 6 to 7, $5 per person, and Bingo Games and Crafts from 7 to 10. It's $2 a person to play bingo. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. On February 20, the American Printing House for the Blind is holding a rescheduled event from January. Helen Keller, This Is Your Life, 1 to 3 p.m., Meet the woman who forever changed the world for people with disabilities. As we recreate the set of the famous 1950s television show, you will learn the story of her life beyond the famous incident at the water pump. To be held at the American Printing House for the Blind, 1839 Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville. It's free to the public, but space is limited, so registration is required. Call 502-899-2213. On February 21, the KSB alumni will hold its next board meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call 605-475-6006, intercode 294444. February 22 is the next Guide Dog Users of Kentucky membership call, 7 p.m. Eastern Time by phone 605-475-6006, intercode 294444. On February 24, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have its next peer support group meeting, 12 to 2 p.m. A presentation by the Kidney Health Alliance of Kentucky will talk about kidney disease and will also offer free screenings at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. Call 859-259-1834. 
February 26th is the last GLCB roundabout of February. Education and technology from 3.30 to 6. Dinner, pizza, $5 a person, 6 to 7. And games and crafts from 7 to 10. 502-895-4598 to sign up. And of course, roundabouts are held at the United Crescent Hill Ministries. On February 27 to March 1, the American Council of the Blind will hold its mid-year meetings including the President's Meeting, Board Meeting, and the ACB Legislative Seminar at the Crown Plaza Old Town in Alexandria, Virginia. Visit www.acb.org or call the ACB National Office at 202-467-5081 for information. On February 28, the Kentucky Council of the Blind Next Generation Chapter for People 40 and Under will hold its dine-out from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Texas Roadhouse at 6460 Dutchman's Parkway in Louisville. Call 502-750-1774 or email alsmoot87 at gmail.com. On March 2, the KCBPR Membership Committee will hold its meeting at 8 p.m., by phone at 605-475-6006, code 294444. March 3 is the next meeting of ACB Lions, monthly meeting for blind lions from throughout the country. Call 712-432-3900 and enter code 796096. The call is at 9 Eastern. On March 4, the GLCB Roundabout will have Braille and Tech Tips from 3.30 to 5, a presentation on the Civil War in Jefferson County, a look back in time from 5 to 6 p.m., dinner from 6 to 7, and games and crafts from 7 to 10. On March 6, the Greater Louisville Council will be holding its committee meetings. The Advocacy Committee meets at 7, the Education and Technology Committee at 8, and the Activities Committee at 9, all on the conference line at 605 475 6006, enter code 294444. On March 8, the Bluegrass Council quarterly meeting will be from 12 to 2 p.m. The program is being presented by Vanda Pharmaceuticals. The meeting will be at the BCB office on South Broadway in Lexington. Call 859 259 1834 for more information. Also on March 8, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will hold its monthly meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time in Owensboro. It will be at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, and the presentation is on emergency preparedness. For more information, call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418 or Bill Roberts at 270-485-8170. On March 10, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its monthly meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern by phone. Call 605-475-4700 and enter code 155619. March 11 is a GLCB roundabout with Braille and tech tips from 3.30 to 5, a discussion topic which will be eating healthy with diabetes from 5 to 6 p.m., dinner, $5 a person from 6 to 7, and games and crafts from 7 to 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call 502-895-4598 to sign up. 
On March 12, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have its board meeting at 11 a.m. by phone, 605-475-6006, intercode 294444. March 13 is the KCB Next Generation meeting by conference call at 8 p.m. Eastern at 605-475-6006, code 294444. On March 15, the Tri-State Library users will have its in-person dinner meeting in Louisville. The time, place, and topic are to be announced. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.